the last time we met together a couple weeks ago, Malachi had directly addressed the priests in verses 6 through 14 for accepting unsuitable offerings that they brought to God. Well, in his first half of this chapter, Malachi continues to address them, but this time his indictment is much wider. As we'll soon read, not only were they failing as mediators, they were also failing to fulfill their other priestly functions as teachers and as legal interpreters of his word, of God's word. As we move on to the second half of this chapter, the people's unfaithfulness to God's covenant will be highlighted through their failure of honoring their covenant marriages. These charges not only include Malachi himself, but to all of humanity, all of us that are even living today. See, when Malachi was giving these prophetic words, he was dealing with people who were defiant, unprincipled, and God had to address it. They were acting hypocritically. They were trying to fool God with their actions and behavior. And that's, that's why I titled this morning's message, You Can't Fool God. Because for some strange reason, there's this idea out there. We often convince ourselves that we can, that we can fool God. Just with our actions, our behaviors, if we cry long enough, if we worship long enough, that we can fool God into thinking that we're being sincere when really He knows what's going on in our hearts. So as we go through these 17 verses, we're going to learn about the kind of heart God expects not only His leaders in the church to have, but His people in general, His children. Among them will be faithfulness to God, personal integrity, modeling as teaching, as a teaching tool, marriage and divorce, and lastly, the truth about God's justice. Now, we do have a lot to cover this morning, um, so let's um, come before the Lord and ask Him to speak to us this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we are, we're so thankful you brought us here together. We're so thankful that you've um, brought me and my family um, here again to be able to worship you, to, to thank you for all you've done in our lives, Lord. I pray you move right now in this room. We know there's just, you know that there's just a handful of us, but we know that you're here, Lord. Because wherever two or three are gathered, you're there among us. So speak to us mightily, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Will you just forget about what's going on in our lives, all the problems, all the issues, Lord. And just maybe come to you with an open heart and open mind. Lord, fill us with your love and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... We're going to begin Malachi chapter 2 this morning. Malachi chapter 2. There the Word of God says, Therefore this decree is for you, priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you're not taking it to heart. Look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. Now we'll spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity, and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard, should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned away, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. Now, our passage this morning begins with the words, Therefore, this decree is for you, priests. This statement alone tells us two things. It gives us the resulting action of what, ha- what was just said in verses 8 through 14. And it gives us the next topic of this section. So although this indictment may have included others, this decree or this warning of discipline is addressed expressly, expressively to the, expressly to the priests. The content is given and elaborated in verse 2 and 3, and his purpose is given in verse 4. God decreed that if the priest's attitude and behavior didn't change, he would treat them with contempt as they had treated him, and he would remove them from service. First, he promised to disturb their work by turning their priestly blessings into curses, which he says had already begun. Now, why is this? Because they already weren't taking the worship uh, and holy sacrifices to heart, and they were treating them with contempt. Second, God says that he would rebuke their descendants. It was important for Jews at the time to have children in order to perpetuate, perpetuate the nation, but God would prevent even the human seed of being productive. Now, another way of looking at at it is that God would turn their children, who should be a blessing, into a burden and a curse. It would be painful not to have children, but it would also be painful to have children who daily broke your heart and created grief in the home. Third, God would dishonor their work by sending animal waste What this means is animal poop over their faces and they'll be taken away with it. Sacrificed animals at the time still had poop in their system. And in Exodus 29, 14, God said that this should be burned outside the sanctuary, outside the city. So here God is saying that he would treat the priests as unclean, deserving of being placed outside the camp with the waste from their festival sacrifices. In my years as a Christian, and maybe you as well, I've heard and seen many Christians who were once blessed by God have those blessings taken from them for some of these same reasons. Their worship grew cold because of the distractions of this life, and they were no longer offering God the best of who they were or what they have. Now, we talked in depth about this last week when we covered chapter 1, so I really won't get into it this time, but they just weren't worshiping God with a true heart. Some neglected their God-given role as husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. Rather than leading by example in the home, they end up having loveless marriages and bitter children who want nothing to do with the church. Or with God. Others took for granted their calling as teachers and ministers of God's people. They didn't value the precious gift that God had given them. And so God removed them from these positions because their hearts weren't right with Him. For these reasons and many others, a lot of people who started out with good intentions have been removed from ministry. You see, over time, They began to treat what was sacred as common and their ministries became ritualistic, empty, religious formality. Our God, He loves the church. He loves the people in the church too much for it to be treated that way by anyone. He sacrificed so much for the church. And what does it say? to him when it's treated like garbage. 
Now, as I mentioned, the purpose is given in verse 4, which is the the preservation of the covenant with Levi that had been placed in jeopardy by the behavior of of these priests. God's covenant of life and peace was made with Phineas because he revered God, taught true instruction, and walked with God in peace and integrity. His actions, what he did, set the standard for every priest that came after him so that it may be expected from them to guard knowledge, to get instruction from them, and to functions as messenger, as a messenger of the Lord of armies. This also should be the standard for anyone who desires to lead a ministry, whether it's here in the church or at another organization. This should also be the standard. When it comes to choosing ministry leaders here at this church, there are four characteristics I look for. A personal experience of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. A sense of calling from the Lord. A love for and knowledge of the Word of God. And a high respect for the work of the ministry. Likewise, these are characteristics that you also should look for in a church leader. And yes, this includes me, me, myself. This includes me. You ought to look for these things in me as well. I would caution you, though, about being led by anyone acting flippantly about their role as ministry leaders. Those who lead ought to understand and respect the great responsibility they've been tasked with. Now Malachi turns back to his audience, the priests, with a threefold indictment verse 8. First, rather than walking with the Lord in peace and integrity, they had turned away, or they had turned from the way. Second, instead of turning many from iniquity, their instruction had caused me to stumble. And thirdly, and most, the most prominent charge was that instead of standing in awe of the Lord's name, the priest had violated the covenant with Levi. When we see verse 9, what we see then in verse 9 are the results of their gross dereliction of duty. God caused these hypocritical priests to be despised and humiliated before all the people. See, these priests wanted to be popular. That's why they were doing what they were doing. They wanted the praise of men and even twisted the law to gain friends. But the people saw right through them, saw right through their hypocrisy and showed no respect for them. The prophet then ends this section by reiterating the twofold error of God's representatives, failure to keep his ways and showing partiality in their instruction. So what these first nine verses of chapter two show us is the importance of modeling as a teaching tool. See, teaching not only occurs with words, but also by how we live, by how we live our lives. Too often the lessons we're trying to teach others or to teach our children gets muted because our life gets in the way of the teaching and the lessons we're trying to teach turn into do as I say and not as I do. If you want to be a good example of a Christian, how you live must line up with the teachings of Jesus in all areas areas of your life. And wherever you're at, whether it's here, at home, at work, it should line up with Scripture. Malachi 2.6 explains several aspects of this teaching model. And it can only be learned through our lifestyle. Spurgeon once said, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree with the mass 
disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. The truth is, it's through living correctly rather than just mouthing the right words that people are led astray from lives of sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Paul also understood this and was the reason he lived the life that he did so that others would not only learn from his words but see that he not only talked the talk but he walked the talk as well. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me as I, also, as, I, as I also imitate Christ. Also in Philippians 3.17, he says, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. This also happened following Pentecost in the life and experience of the newly born church, God's new covenant people. Many were drawn to the new life through Peter's preaching, but many more came through the life, through the lived message of Christ's followers. Later, when Paul wrote to Titus, he explains at least part of his understanding of what sound doctrine is by explaining it matters as matter, matters of daily life rather than as objective uh, propositions of belief. This also extends beyond teaching to daily life since it is the inward heart as well as the outward actions that reflect our relationship with God. On the other hand, however, this model also has negative implications when leaders focus more on doing the right thing and forget why they're doing it. Many lives of faithful servants have been ruined over fleeting indiscretion, ruining the person's witness. What has taken so long to build up, to attain, is quickly lost. This is at the heart of the message of the definition of integrity. An unbroken wholeness where there isn't a gap at all between words and deeds. This must characterize the life of the Israelite priest that Malachi is addressing, as well as each and every one of us as Christians, as members of, the, of a kingdom of priests. Not surprisingly, the general population, following the pattern of the spiritual leaders, failed to keep the covenant with God. This be, uh, became apparent in their marriages. And is the next subject we'll be reading about. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go back to our passage and let's pick up in verse 10. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Don't all of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. 
So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Having dealt with the sins of the priest, Malachi now turns to the nation, to the people as a whole, and confronts the men who divorce their wives to marry pagan women. Emphasizing that God is the father and creator of Israel, Malachi chews out Israel for acting treacherously, particularly in the marriage covenant. What they were doing was shameful and disrespected the Abrahamic covenant, which was meant to make Israel a distinct, uh, make Israel distinct as a people. Well, we're told that one of the ways they were acting treacherously was in their selection of idolatrous foreign women as wives. Now, the issue here wasn't that they were marrying non-Jews, but that the women were following other gods. As a result, these Jewish husbands followed their wives' idolatry and profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which, verse 11 says, he loves. Malachi declares in verse 12 that the men who committed the sin of marrying pagans and worshiping their gods would be cut off, or another way of saying that is excommunicated, from the community of Israel, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of Armies. So this brings up an interesting point for unmarried Christians who plan to marry one day. If you or your future spouse have different views about God, different views about salvation, and what happens after death, it's eventually going to cause issues in the marriage. Many marriages have failed because one or both people wouldn't compromise on their beliefs or how they wanted to raise their children or how they wanted them to be taught about God. And if it isn't the marriage that fails, the, the close relationship one had with God begins to falter, begins to fall to the, to the, to the wayside because they didn't choose, because they did choose to compromise their beliefs. Paul was aware of this too and was the reason why he wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't become partners with those who don't believe, who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? If you're watching, listening, you're, you're here, you're a young man or woman that is not married, be wise when it comes to who you will marry. Start praying for that future spouse now. And be on the lookout for those who love the Lord more than they love you. Now, a second way Israel behaved detestably was by divorcing their wives in order to marry these foreign pagan women. In divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying these daughters of a foreign god, the Jewish men and priests were committing several sins. But the ones that is specifically pointed out here were how they profaned the Lord's sanctuary by willingly breaking their vows to God and to their wives. I find it absolutely horrifying when I hear stories about men leaving their wives, whether it's 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years for someone younger, someone more attractive, someone more exciting, someone that you know isn't boring like their wife. It's horrifying to me. It's appalling. And when I'm told that they actually do it and that it was premeditated, that gets my blood boiling. 
especially when kids are involved and then are left wondering what happened to dad. Let me tell you, just because something feels right doesn't mean that it is right. That's why it's so important that we not, not allow our life to be dictated by how we feel, but by what God says is true and right. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us why. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. So to avoid being fooled by our feelings, Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you're listening to this message, this message, and you're, if you're either contemplating or on the verge of leaving your marriage for someone else, for these feelings that you have right now, I urge you not to. And to walk away from that dangerous ledge. Talk to somebody that will help you see what you're failing to see. Because the truth is, the ramifications of walking away from your family will be disastrous to you, your spouse, and your children. When you married your partner, you made a vow before God and man to cherish, honor, and protect them for the rest of your life. The word marriage partner in verse 14 refers to someone with whom one is bound by friendship, common goals, and commitment. Whether you give him the credit or not, God was the one who brought you and your spouse together and allowed that marriage to occur. Now, I know that many of us, and I thought it too at one time, was like, you know, if I didn't want to, I didn't have to marry this person. You know, I, I chose it. It happened because I wanted it to happen. And it was, you know, I, made, I probably made a mistake or whatnot, a bunch of other excuses or reasons. But if you think about it, the truth is God is more in control than what we think. If he didn't want you to marry that person, if he didn't want you to spend the rest of your life with that person, he would have prevented that marriage from happening. He would have caused something to happen or, or he would have moved you away or that person would have just not been in your life anymore. But it was him. It was him who brought you guys together for a reason and a purpose. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, we then see in verse 13 that after committing these sins, the men would cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, seeking his help and blessing. Perhaps they had the idea that they could outright sin and then come to the altar expecting a blessing by simply crying long enough and hard enough. But God saw right through their crocodile tears and knew there wasn't any true heart of repentance. See, if they were truly repentant, they would have forsaken their heathen wives and taken back their wives of their youth. So what's being revealed here is that these men were guilty of hypocritical worship that had nothing to do with a changed heart. Instead of forgiving them, the last part of verse 14 says that God no longer respects their offering or receives them gladly from their hands. Verse 15 then contains the reason for God's anger. They were blatantly violating God's original creation for marriage with Adam and Eve as one flesh and a product of his spirit. See, God expected couples to stay married because to him, they're permanently one flesh and one spirit. 
And one important reason for this oneness is to establish a proper environment, raising godly offspring separated from the corruption of idol worship. Therefore, here, the basic issue wasn't maintaining racial purity, but rather loyalty to the God of Israel and maintaining a godly home. Now, this passage here brings up the interesting or controversial topic of divorce. When it comes to the issue of divorce, although it's never commanded, there's no doubt that God allows it in particular circumstances. God's heart, however, has always been for repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation in the marriage. Fact is, we've sinned against God far worse than any spouse could sin against us, and God does not divorce us, even though He has every right to. Yet because we're fallen and suffer from a hardness of heart, God gives us permission to, for divorce in two circumstances. According to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, sexual immorality is valid grounds. And so is desertion by an unbelieving spouse, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. Significantly, misery, unhappiness, poverty, or incompatibilities are never given as grounds of divorce. However, here there's a danger of abuse and separation is often in order in accordance with um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. But here's the kicker about separation. The separated couple must live in complete faithfulness to their marriage vows, even if they're not living together. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, that if someone doesn't have biblical grounds for divorce, God regards them as still married. And any subsequent relationship is considered adultery. Now, it's interesting, again, that there are many people out there that will do these kind of things. They will divorce their wife just because, and they call themselves Christians. They will divorce their wife because they, just, they don't get along. And, they, and then they sit in church and they're like, yeah, you know, Jesus is my Savior. I follow Jesus' teachings. But when it comes to His words, these specific words, or other words that they just simply ignore, it's easier for them just to ignore it. How easy it is for all of us to do the same thing, just to pick and choose what we want to follow, what is important for us. We can ignore certain words of Jesus, but follow others. It shouldn't be the case. We should follow all of them. We should follow everything that Jesus is asking us to do because it's for the best. He wants the best for us. The point isn't that you shouldn't divorce for unbiblical grounds. It's that you can't divorce for unbiblical grounds. Nevertheless, 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that if someone divorces having proper grounds, then they're free to marry. Now the reason I read, now the version I read to, this version that we have, the um, Christian Standard Bible, um, says in the beginning of verse 16, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel. That's what it re how it reads here. However, if you notice, or if you have another version, it may look similar to how it says in the New King James Version. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Well, without getting too in-depth about the structure and the grammatical debates surrounding this verse, I agree with some, with some of the scholars who have concluded that apparently the subject here is the one who acts treacherously and who covers his garment with injustice. This is who, they, who scholars believe is the subject here. We also see that the one speaking is the Lord God of Israel. 
indicating he's speaking directly to those who act treacherously against the wife of his youth. So although God made it clear, he does make it clear already in this passage that divorce grieves him because it destroys an institution he created and loves. Here in, in the beginning of verse 16, he's not the subject of he hates. Therefore, as I understand it, this verse specifies how wives are being betrayed. Their husbands were hating so as to divorce them for no legitimate reason, which was a gross injustice. Those who would deny their wives the very things he made an oath to provide, devotion, care, companionship, protection, and intimacy, stood condemned by God. Malachi further states that a remorseless and unethical traitor to his marriage vows covers his garment with injustice. In other words, it would be as if he wore the blood, the innocent blood of a murdered victim, like a robe, flaunting it for everyone to see. Malachi's concluding exhortation, therefore watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously, is a strong warning to every husband to guard himself against developing a negative attitude toward his wife. We all know what it's like to neglect something. For instance, if you don't take care of that noise coming from your car or maintain it regularly, it's going to come back to hurt you. Well, this is even more true in regard to husbands because the, the wife is actually part of the husband. By neglecting her, you're not only damaging her, but you're also damaging yourself as time goes on and the problem isn't fixed. Ephesians 5.28 says this, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So simply put, when you love your wife, you benefit yourself. Now, this last chapter then ends with one final verse having to do with God's injustice. So let's go there now and read this last verse in chapter 2. Verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. Or else, where is the God of justice? The story is told of a farmer of a, of, in a Midwestern state who had a strong disdain for religious things. As he plowed his field, plowed his field on on Sunday morning, he would shake his fist at church people who passed on their way to worship. October came, and the farmer had his finest crop ever, the best in the entire county. When the harvest was complete, he placed an advertisement in the local paper, which belittled Christians for their faith in God. Near the end of his diatribe, he wrote, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in the, in the community was quiet and polite. In the next edition of the town's paper, a small ad appeared. It read simply, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. This final verse tells us that as justification for their misbehavior in marriage and divorce, Israel claimed that God had failed them by allowing evil all around them. Therefore, Israel wearied the Lord, complaining that he approved of evil and was uncaring about, was uncaring about justice. Well, God's ironic reply will be found in the first six verses of chapter 3, which we'll cover next week. However, the fact 
as they were questioning God's justice revealed two things. How much they doubted Him. And, they truly, and that they truly didn't understand. They truly didn't get it. That the God, what the God of justice would give them if He had the same mindset, if He had the same attitude they had. So let me ask you, are you wearing the Lord with similar complaints? If you find yourself questioning God's justice because of all the evil you see happening around you, or that He approves of it, you don't know Him very well. Maybe some of you have begun justifying your own sinful behavior because you're not seeing God punishing those who are doing the same thing. The, the idea goes, if, if God doesn't care, why should I? If you can't beat them, join them. If he's not doing anything about them, or he's not punishing them, he's certainly not going to punish me. Well, let me give you a reality check. God neither approves, nor does he delight in sinful behavior. And as promised, he has absolutely promised that one day he will punish the wicked and will reward the faithful. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. I personally believe that the biggest reason God hasn't judged mankind yet, God hasn't judged the evil in this world, is because He is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Why is He this way? Because according to 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And what is that truth? Well, this may be a familiar verse to you. John 3.16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Many of you know this, but because you've been paying attention more, paying more attention to what's around you than on Jesus, you've lost your way and you need to be directed back to Him. See, don't look at what others are doing. Don't look at the sin of others and say, you know, He hasn't punished them. He won't punish me. Lord, don't you care about justice? Don't you care about what they're doing? He does. But what He wants you to do is to focus on Him and to focus, just pay attention to your own actions. Look, again, don't look at what others are doing. Look to the Lord. Look to God and hold on to His promises. Our God is a just God and will carry out His justice perfectly according to His will, and according to His timing. In the meantime, all He desires from you is for you to remain faithful to Him and to obey His words. He wants to have a relationship with you that is one of life and peace, where reverence is given to Him and where you're just standing in awe of Him, where you're just, where when you're in His presence, you have that complete awe. You're like, oh God, you're so good and wonderful. And I praise you and 
no, there's no one like you. I glorify you. Well, you just want to fall on your knees and worship him. So while you can, while you can right now, while you're breathing, while he's allowing you to breathe before it's too late, believe in him, trust in him, fall in love with him. And if you've never done that, if you're listening or watching and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've come to a dead end and you've tried other roads, you've tried other ways and and nothing else has worked out. Trust in Him today. Let Him come into your life. Allow Him to fill you with His love and you'll see the new life that He's given you, that He wants to give you. And if you're ready to do that wherever you're at, just close your eyes, bow your head, and with a sincere heart, worship this. I mean, pray this. with all sincerity. Lord God, I've blown it. I'm a sinner. It's clear that I've broken your commands. And so I come before you now and ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus, your son, to die on the cross for my sins. And I confess now that He is Lord. Fill me with Your love, with Your Spirit, Lord. So that I may see You, understand You, know You, Lord. I praise You. I thank You for forgiving me of my sins. So help me now to walk with you. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, you prayed that, get a hold of us, talk to us. Um, we'd like to lead you into your next steps, but isn't God wonderful? Isn't God awesome? I mean, like He's given... As we go, again, as we look through, through chapter 2, we can learn so many lessons from these, d- these defiant and disobedient people. We don't have to walk as they walked. We don't have to make the same mistakes that they made. We can learn from their lessons. And that's what God wants us to do here. Seek Him out. Pay attention to what's going on in your own life. Seek God. Repent of your sins. Fall before Him in, in, again in awe and worship. Again, He wants to bless you, but how can He when your heart is far from Him, when you're purposely disobeying Him? Live a life of integrity. Respect your marriages. Love your wives. Love your husband. Love your children. He brought them into your life for a reason. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes I know it's, it's, it could be frustrating. And, and, and some days we're feeling the love and some days we're not. But again, feelings come and go. But truth will last forever. And the truth is that He created marriage. He he brought you guys together for a reason. And He has given you children to take care of, to also raise according to His ways. So take care of that also. Cherish that. Fall in love with the Lord. Have lives of integrity. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, and we thank you for this word you've given us. May we see where we're falling short, whether it's through our example, 
in our homes, at work, at church, Lord. May we feel that heavy burden and see again where, we've, where we just have blown it. So that we can confess it, Lord, and you can heal us. Lord, we want to be people of integrity. We want to be people that love you, that are doing the right thing even when others aren't looking, Lord, that our actions line up with, our, with your words. Lord, may we live our lives completely dedicated to you. I pray for those who are single here, Lord. I pray for their future wives that you bring the right ones along, Lord, that they may be, again, more in love with you than they are with them, Lord. May they have a heart completely for you. And I pray for the marriages too, Lord, those that are here, those that are watching, Lord, that you strengthen them, Lord, that you show them again that the, the love, the commitment you've made to one another, that through the good and through the bad, they're, they're meant to be together. Bring along the right people to encourage them, to guide them, to pray with them in their marriages. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.